0: You know, veganism is a very convenient way to describe the way that I eat and in some ways the way that I live my life. But it's very easy to fall into this trap of saying, I'm vegan and that's it. I I don't eat animal products or I advocate on behalf of animal rights. And that's all I do. And that's wonderful. That's fine. But for me, it's more like I am who I am. And part of who I am is that I love animals, and therefore I try to live a life that causes them the least amount of harm as possible.
1: Hello, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This week, we meet Joanne Molinaro, also known as the Korean Vegan. Joanne is a Korean American born in Chicago, Illinois. When you consider her tasks and accomplishments, you wonder how on earth Joanne manages to incorporate all her work and play in a 24-hour period. She works for a large law firm, runs 30 to 40 miles a week, and creates a blog that has over 100,000 followers. On top of that, she's managed to write her first book, which she hopes to release in autumn 2021. Joanne also writes poetry and prose, with her writing appearing in Side B Magazine, Cha, an Asian literary journal, and The Mashup Americans. Joanne started her blog, The Korean Vegan, in 2016, after switching to a plant-based diet. In July 2020, she started her TikTok platform, mostly as a coping mechanism for the isolation caused by the global pandemic. Each of the simple recipe videos she shared include an accompanying family story of less than 60 seconds. She's shared stories of her mother's immigration to America, her grandmother's escape from North Korea, interracial dating and much, much more. In addition to her other work, Joanne has given cooking demonstrations, participated in fundraising events for North Korean refugees, and is invited to be the keynote speaker for the Korean Women's International Conference in 2018. I absolutely love this episode. Joanne is such a magical person. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a review. It really does help get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much, Joanne, for joining us on the PBM Podcast. What an absolute pleasure it is to have you here.
0: It's so great to be here. I'm very excited to chat with you today. You know how they say success is the best revenge? Well, every time I hear that quote, I think of Billy Pope. You see, Billy was my big crush in seventh grade. I was a big time nerd, and Billy, well, he was one of the popular kids. Blonde hair, blue eyes, and rich parents. So you can imagine how excited I was when I found out he liked me. We started holding hands at recess, sitting together at lunch, and passing notes during social studies. And then he wanted to go to second base. And, well, I didn't. So he dumped me, which broke my heart, of course. And then I overheard him say, I'm dumping that dumb And while it hurt me a lot, it also made me really mad, like wanted to punch him in the face mad. I didn't end up punching him in the face. I threw my jacket at him though. The other day I was snooping through Facebook and there he was. He looked a little bit like the boy I crushed on in junior high, but mostly it looked like he really liked to drink beer. He messaged me when we became Facebook friends. I read it, didn't respond, though in my head I wanted to ask him, what do you think about this dumb
1: now? Before we get started and learn about all the amazing things you're doing with your life today, uh, as always, I love to ask my guests this simple question, where did you discover the vegan lifestyle and where did that all begin for you?
0: Oh, wow. That's a big question. Where did I... So I was in Chicago. So literally speaking, I was in Chicago when I discovered the, the vegan lifestyle. We became vegan in 2016. And it was largely inspired by a book that my husband, then boyfriend, read called Finding Ultra. My uh, husband and I are both avid runners, and Rich Roll, who is the author of Finding Ultra, shared in his sort of memoir about his journey towards becoming a plant-based athlete, which very much inspired my husband to do the same. And he really wanted me to join him, and I really didn't want to. (laughs) So it was a bit of a fight. (laughs) And he really ran sort of a campaign uh, to move me towards that lifestyle. And in about three weeks of lots of movies, articles, lots of tough conversations, and then ultimately my own father um, becoming ill with cancer, it all kind of just... You know, converge to pushing me over the edge. And it was also a very non committal decision. I always knew that if I didn't like it, I could just go back to my original lifestyle. And so it was very easy for me to just say, oh, let's just give it a try. And then I realized it was a lot easier and much more fulfilling than I could have ever imagined.
1: So you were really fast tracked into it. I think a lot of people take years to make the switch. So it's interesting to hear. I, I assume that's on account of your, this is your, your husband, your, cause I think you've, you've had two marriages. Am I correct?
0: Yes. Yeah, so this is my so this, second husband. Yes. This is your
1: second husband. That mm-hmm. did, that amazing. So this obviously speaks volumes uh, as to your loving relationship, because uh, <laughs> I'm in the same situation. My partner and I, we both went vegan at the same time. And I think if we hadn't had such a close relationship, it wouldn't have happened in such a sp- expedient way. And we'll touch, you know, we'll talk about your, 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 your husband and, and your life from that perspective, but just going back to sort of, you know, veganism and food culture. Tell us a little bit about like your childhood and the food culture of your childhood and, and how it differs to, to where it is today.
0: Yeah, so I grew up with my grandmothers. So first it was my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, and then starting from about four years to 13 years, it was my paternal grandmother. My mother worked full time as a nurse and my father didn't cook very much, <laughs> So it was really just relying on my grandmothers for all my food. And that meant 90% of the food we were eating was Korean food. And for, you know, both my grandparents were from North Korea, so there was sort of a North Korean bent to the cuisine that we were eating, although, of course, I didn't know that at the time. Every once in a while, my mom would pop in and she'd make us her version of spaghetti or casserole, and we would get really excited because my brother and I really didn't like Korean food. We felt like we were kind of missing out on what all the other kids got to eat, you know, uh, McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and, you know, meatloaf. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's sounds really disgusting now, but that's what we wanted to eat. But yeah, so we were eating a lot of Korean food, mostly fish, um, lots of vegetables. My my grandmothers were both very acquainted with farming. And so our entire backyard, whether we lived in our first house in Skokie, Illinois, or Wilmette, Um, had a very, very robust garden full of zucchini and perilla leaves and corn and so many different tomatoes and peppers that we would see on our dinner table every single night. So it was a very healthy, very healthy kind of food that we were growing up eating. And then I went to college and you know, things went a little bit downhill after that when I wasn't there to eat my family's cooking.
1: Tell us a bit about your, your family history because obviously as you said your family come from uh, North Korea originally so you were born in the U.S. or you're born in Korea?
0: Yes yeah, so I was born here and well born not in here West. but yeah no actually here I'm in Chicago <laughs> I was born <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> born in
1: Chicago so what was it like kind of growing up in the U.S. Uh, obviously with a, with a Korean family who would have brought their traditions with them Food traditions, other cultures, and other sort of traditions. Like how I think you you know you've definitely spoken about it in your in your monologues on your Instagram, which we'll get into. But what was it like as a child, sort of growing up in American culture and and, and being different from from I assume most people who you went to school with?
0: Yeah, it was very jarring at first because I was raised by my grandmothers. Uh, my first language was Korean, and I didn't know that there was anything else because I was very insulated uh, for the first few years of my life living with my grandmas and they were kind of taking me everywhere. And I knew sort of at a certain point that there was this other language out there. But I thought that it was, you know, something that you only spoke outside. Like I, I used to call it the Dominic's language because it was the Dominic's was the grocery store by our house. And my dad and my mom only spoke it at Dominic's. So I I called it the Dominic's language. And yeah, and I'd see my dad writing English, you know, on sheets of paper. And I'd say, oh, daddy's writing Dominic's language. <laughs> and then I got to school. I remember just feeling horribly alone, because everybody else was speaking the Dominic's language, and I couldn't speak it. I didn't really understand it. I remember very specifically being incredibly irate at my grandmothers for making me feel so ill-prepared for the outside world why didn't you teach me the right language why did you outfit me in the wrong clothing why did you send me to school with all the wrong food how dare you do this to me you've made me the laughing stock of this school and so it was very difficult during those first few years but you know kids are totally like Adaptable. I quickly learned English and, you know, to the dismay of my parents, forgot all my Korean (laughs) and, you know, settled in. But it was a very early lesson for me that, wow, I'm different. And sometimes being different can subject you to pain because Mm -hmm. the kids were not very friendly to me at the very beginning.
1: Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. But being someone who sort of grew up in a in a different country, I, I did. I obviously came to the UK when I was much older. I was in my sort of late teens, early, you know, well late 20s when I was 19 and the, the shock obviously it was fortunate to speak the language but the cultural shock was was absolutely terrifying I don't think I left the house for the first two weeks that I was here because everything was so different you know and and I think many people who grew up in the sort of western part of the world you know really take for granted what it feels like to shift your culture and to be sort of supplanted into a totally different culture permanently without really much of a choice like yourself I didn't really have a choice I was stuck on a plane by my my parents and sent to a uh, cloudy gray England and it was terrifying but as you as with you I also was adaptable and I moved quickly to you know to what's the word assimilate mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. which which is an interesting word obviously and you and again you talked about it like fitting in and being that kind of model American person in in all the ways you could so that you could fit in but you've alluded to the fact that you broke free from that like at what point in your life did you suddenly realize? That you didn't need to be all of that, all that stuff that, you know, that's sort of pushed on us um, in a culture like the US where you can now finally be who you truly are. Like at what, what age were you?
0: I think that I really started to independently think that way in college, which makes a lot of sense because that's the first time I was forced to be away from my family from their food and from their language and the comforts and safety associated with that. I had severe separation anxiety from my parents. Like I really didn't like being away from my family. I think I, I missed the food, obviously, but it was really embarrassing. I'd, I'd go to this Korean restaurant at Urbana, which is where I went to college. I wouldn't even know the names of the food to order. Because I took it for granted. I just this is what harmony my grandma made. I don't know what it's called. I don't need to know what it's called. You know, it's just it's just the food that shows up. And it was then that I realized, wow, how much for granted I had taken my culture, my identity, all of these things that made me feel safe about who I was. And I actually majored in, or not majored, I, I minored in. Asian American studies in college, partly because I wanted to understand that sort of dynamic, you know, this idea of finding myself again through you know, reading and books and literature and you know, starting a dialogue internally and with other academics about what the Asian American identity actually is. And, and that's an ever-evolving conversation. But I would say that's probably when it started uh, preliminarily. I used to be afraid of eating, and then I started cooking all my favorite foods like jajangmyeon, tteokbokki, ramen, kimchi-bokkumbbap. I realized that cooking and eating these foods was more than just a caloric equation, that these foods made me feel safe in the same way strangers speaking Korean in the middle of the airport when I'm traveling for work makes me feel safe. Sometimes, especially when I look in the mirror, I start to get afraid again. And then I think of the time my mom taught me how to make sundubu jjigae and remember that the most important parts of me are things I'll never see in any mirror.
1: You know, now that you've obviously found that kind of connection, how how in your sort of life today has it expressed itself compared to what it was when you were younger? So, you know, how if you, if you were to talk to your younger self, would you give them, uh, give her some advice about those feelings of feeling different?
0: I think that if I were to give advice to my younger self, I would say to be more respectful. I think that was my biggest problem was just a complete lack of respect for my parents and for my grandparents and everything that they struggled through and brought with them to the United States. I took so much for granted. I didn't realize the struggle and the heart that strung everything together for me uh, culturally, like whether it's the food or the clothing and, of course, the language and the stories that my family is kind of bore with them to the United States, but I never really was interested in. And I wish that I could go back, even if that didn't necessarily change my behavior, you know, as, quote, American, you know, whether it's assimilating or trying to do the right thing as a, quote, American it would have at least changed my attitude towards my family and ultimately towards myself. It would have made me more comfortable with myself and more confident about who I was. And I wish I could instill that in my younger self. But, you know, it is what it is. And, um, you know, I have a really fabulous relationship with my parents right now. I wish I had spent more time with my grandparents, though. This one time I invited Anthony's family to my house for dinner and I was running late and I ended up having to cook still in my suit and six inch heels because they were already at my house. Afterwards, Anthony reported that his aunt, who'd flown all the way from Italy, thought I was a very interesting lady. People tend to view me in categories. She's the vegan, she's the cook, she's the one with the sad stories. The truth is, I enjoy cooking because I love to eat and I tell stories to help you and me feel less alone during COVID and I'm a lawyer. I understand the law and how to use it to help my clients, and yes, the same voice that lulls you into burying your heart can be applied to judges and jurors alike. I'm not an ordinary lawyer. I have eight tattoos and I prefer a backpack over a briefcase. I'm not always the best cook. That night Anthony's family came over for dinner, I accidentally dropped a plate of homemade pizza all over the floor and nearly started to cry. Then his cousin reminded everyone of the five-second rule and we all ate the pizza anyway. I think that Anthony's aunt is right. I am an
1: interesting lady staying on the topic of your family food is such a big part of your life today and we'll definitely go into that but how does your family or what did your family think of your your vegan or plant-based uh, <laughs> lifestyle what do they think of it are they in supportive of it are they horrified what, what where, where does it <laughs> sit at the moment
0: they're not horrified I think they were intrigued slash curious then they quickly got irritated slash annoyed uh, and then now I think they are sort of you know, begrudgingly respectful of it, I guess. Um, you know, and that's not across the board. Everyone sort of feels a little bit differently about it. But I would say generally speaking, I think at first they assumed it was just a diet uh, to lose weight. And I kind or a of, phase. Yeah, it was a phase. Exactly. it was. <laughs> that's exactly the way it was, uh, you know, labeled to me. You know, when I Spoke to people about my husband going vegan because he went vegan first. Everyone's like, don't worry, Joanne. It's just a phase. He'll get over it. And uh, so I'm sure they thought the same about me when I joined him. You know, when they realized, okay, this isn't a phase, <laughs> I think they started to get a little bit. Annoyed, probably, because they couldn't understand the shift that occurs when you go vegan, whether it's for your health, i.e. plant-based, or whether it's for some other reason. There is a big shift that occurs, I think, emotionally when you do that. And You really can't understand that until you make the change yourself. And so my family didn't make it. You know, they didn't, none of them went vegan. So they couldn't understand what was happening to me on an emotional level, why I was starting to get very annoyed or upset with, you know, watching them eat meat so much or having so much meat at our holiday parties or why I was insisting that we try a vegan Thanksgiving. It was really difficult for them to understand that. And so there was some irritation and some pushback. But now I think seeing how much it's meant to me that, you know, they love me. So of course they can't help, but be, you know, supportive.
1: And what's it like, uh, in, in your country of origin, your family's country of origin, Korea, how, um, if it's North Korea, right. Or, or, or mix of both South and North. There's very it, different it, countries on there.
0: Yeah, they, well, they're different countries, but they weren't very different at the time they were born. Right. right? Okay. So they were, there was no North or South Korea when my parents were born. It's, it's now what's known as North Korea, but yeah, I mean, they're, obviously very different today of
1: course but with with the well with i mean i don't know if people can travel freely between the u.s and north korea or not but what is i guess the question is what is it like to be vegan in korea are you aware of of much of, of the vegan movement in korea north or south do you know much of the of the sort of landscape of this lifestyle there
0: well, I can speak to South Korea much more definitively than North because, as you alluded to, I've never been to North Korea. My father's family is probably not allowed to go back to North Korea um, for various reasons, and it's it's fairly dangerous. So, we haven't been to North Korea as a family. Uh, I just went back to South Korea in 2019 over the summer, and you know, I was vegan then, so it was very interesting to navigate my diet in that country. There are definitely ways to do it. It's not as easy as in the United States. Veganism is certainly something that is becoming much more popular in Korea than it was even three years ago. So it's certainly on the move and in the right direction, but they've got a long way to go when it comes to animal advocacy. Um, as compared to some of their Western counterparts. And, you know, the cynic in me still believes that a lot of the popularity that we're seeing with the plant based diet and, and the vegan diet, if you want to call it, is a function of weight loss. You know, they really are a country that focuses for both men and women on a very slim, lean body. And I think that they view the plant based diet as a means to that end as opposed to anything else.
1: And many- parts of the world where the vegan community, vegan movement is still very young and and requires uh, a lot of creativity to help push it into the forefront. And for me, a lot of the time, it's things like celebrity. Celebrity can be the one of the only ways to sort of break into youth culture or break into uh, the mainstream, because obviously many of these men and women have so much influence. And when they do speak about plant based diets, or they speak about animal rights, it's the only way to sort of to Mass mobilize a message like that in countries that would traditionally always consume animal products with every single meal. It certainly is like that where I come from in Africa. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe, and you know the the idea of not consuming meat with uh, your meal was like not breathing air. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think there's definitely something to that in South Korea. I think there are a couple things that make South Korea a little unique. Number one is the thriving Buddhist community there. And so a lot of people don't realize this, but there are some pockets of Korea that have been meat-free culturally for hundreds and hundreds of years because of the very strong Buddhist element in you know, Korea, like many Asian countries. So I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Chungwan Sunim, who is a very famous Buddhist monk who is, you know, she doesn't call herself vegan because she doesn't like labels, but she doesn't eat meat. She doesn't eat any animal products. And that's really an extension of her philosophy on life, which is to cause as little harm to any living beings as possible. And I think it's very beautiful. But the other thing about Korea is, of course, they are a very new, participant to western civilization and all of the material wealth associated with it they were a country in destitution for most of its existence and a you know against the backdrop of multiple wars so my parents you know if you tell them they can't eat meat that's like telling them to go back to being poor and go back to being war hungry and starving which they have experienced in their lifetimes so it's a very difficult um, sort of instinct to break for them, and it's it's something that I try to be very compassionate towards
1: absolutely because in as it was most parts of the world as you said consumption of meat is associated with upward mobility with being middle class about learning to not learning to working your way out of poverty um and that's the irony but because of the advent of animal agriculture and factory farming you know we've been able to now lower dramatically lower the price of animal products across the board so it, the access to animal products is becoming more and wi- more and more widely spread uh, and you know for, for you know it's an unfortunate effect, because obviously it's decimating our world, as as some of our listeners will know, if you're vegan already, you'll know that agriculture is the leading driver for species extinction, ocean dead zones, river acidification, deforestation, the list goes on and on and on. But on the topic of animals, and sort of, you know, you touched a little on spirituality, um, was there a sort of spiritual aspect to your childhood? Did you have uh, a sort of an awareness of a a spiritual world or a spiritual nature? Because obviously within that comes the conversation of compassion and 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 obviously buddhism is obviously is a fantastic example of that even though there are many buddhists who do eat meat um, and consider consuming animals acceptable obviously it's uh, as far as the uh, teachings go it's it's very much open to debate but what was this sort of like understanding of your childhood and growing up even in the US from your family? Was there any discussions around animals or the awareness of animals or sentience of animals, you know, compassion towards animals at all?
0: Not really. I mean, we were a very Judeo-Christian, you know, family. We went to church and there's a very big church community within the Korean community. That's often how uh, Korean people can kind of stay connected with their heritage and with other immigrant families is through the church network. But I personally grew up loving animals. I mean, so much to the point where I couldn't watch TV with animals or movies with animals because I was always so worried that something was gonna happen to them or that, that they would get hurt. So I've always loved animals and for a, a week or two in college I remember my brother and I um attempted to go vegetarian. My brother is very much the same way. We're both sort of empaths in that way and we both love animals in sort of a what I would say to an unusual degree. And uh, we tried it, we failed. <laughs> that was just one of those areas where I think many vegans could probably relate. Um, They love animals, but they sort of block out that final piece in order to become comfortable with their eating patterns. And then once they finally break with that piece, you know, that kind of ties them to an animal eating world and they move on to become completely free or as free as they can be from eating animals, That's when you're allowed to finally love animals as much as you always knew you could, if that makes Mm. sense.
1: Mm. It's very liberating, isn't it? It
0: is. It's absolutely, totally liberating. And it's, again, that emotional component to becoming fully vegan that you almost cannot really understand until you experience it yourself. Because I have tried explaining it to my family and it's like they just don't get it. When people ask me why I went vegan, it always... (laughs) takes me a little bit of time to answer because there isn't a single answer. And the answers you're about to hear are not terribly compelling. The first answer is because of my then boyfriend, now husband, he decided to go vegan and I distinctly recall how stressful and anxiety inducing it was for me. I used my preparation of food to show love and I felt that because we wouldn't be having that fellowship anymore over food if I didn't go vegan with him, that we would lose that special something. We were actually sitting in the driveway of my boss's house for her Christmas party, and we got into this humongous fight about how I didn't wanna go vegan and why did he have to go vegan? Does he even know what veganism actually is? And he was just really stubborn and stuck to his guns, and I just decided, you know what, fine. I'll give it a try, because I figured, what's the worst that can happen? I can try it for two weeks, and if I really hate it that much, well fine, then I can go back to eating whatever I wanted. So that's what I did, and ultimately, it actually was so much easier than I expected, and as I suspected, it did bring my husband and me closer together. Now, there is a second part to why I decided to stay vegan, if you will. We were watching a lot of movies during that time. I think it was part of my husband's campaign to make me go vegan with him. And a lot of it dealt with animal agriculture, the health effects of a plant-based diet, you know, the environmental effects of a plant-based diet. One of the movies that we watched was called Forks Over Knives, and Forks Over Knives featured a very short little segment on a study that was done on East Asian men and the occurrence of prostate cancer. The study seemed to suggest a correlation between the consumption of red meat and the occurrence of prostate cancer. So East Asian men typically do not have lots of occurrences of prostate cancer, but as their diets grew more westernized and their consumption of red meat increased, All of a sudden, you also started seeing a dramatic increase in the occurrence of prostate cancer.
1: Mm. It is, for me, what I call it is an unlocking of a realization because that realization was always there. We all intrinsically know that animals suffer like we do. We hear them scream or cry when they're hurt. We feel their pain when they are in trouble. You know, you see grown men stopping entire freeways, getting out of their cars and uh, almost calling pile- causing pileups to rescue a bunch of ducks, you know, waddling across a motorway or a freeway, as you would call it. But then they would get back in their car and troddle on down the motorway and go home and have a bacon sandwich or even, you know, a, you know, a duck a la king, maybe. And there's this sort of cognitive dissonance that exists within our society, which is so absurd. But I think the power of veganism and the power of this philosophy, and veganism is obviously just a word. This way of thinking has been around for thousands of years. As you alluded to, many Asian cultures have been meat-free for centuries, if not millennia. And... It has been a way of thinking for, for such a long time. And for, for you as a, as a vegan advocate and as someone who speaks out against many forms of oppression, what do you think is one of the biggest barriers for people adopting this lifestyle? Because obviously there is a sense of urgency when it comes to adopting this lifestyle, because obviously it, it can and will and does reverse many forms of chronic disease, but it is also incredibly positive for planetary health. But in your experience and all the conversations that you've had, what do you think are some of the things that are sort of holding it back from growing and expanding uh, across the globe?
0: Well, I think it's access. And when I say access, I mean that from every level of the word. There's financial and socioeconomic access for sure. Um, There are some families who can barely make ends meet, can't afford their car insurance or their car payments, their mortgage or their rent. And with those types of burdens on their brain, it's very hard for them to say, I'm going to now spend two hours of my day figuring out how to completely rearrange my finances and potentially the grocery stores that I typically visit and figure out about how to eat a plant-based diet. That's just not realistic. It isn't. I know that it's very easy for us to blithely say, well, eating beans and rice is so much cheaper than eating, you know, fried chicken and rice. Okay. That may be Reality and technically true, but you try and explain that to someone who's been eating fried chicken and chicken and meat their whole lives, that you, that you now have to change everything when they've got a lot of other things that are really burdening them. And so I think that's part of it. And when you extrapolate that across the board to even upper middle class families, for example, I'll take my brother as an example. My brother could easily afford a plant-based life. He could easily afford that financially. But he's like, you know, Joanne, I have a three-year-old kid, and I can barely make him eat anything. All he ever wants to eat is mac and cheese and chicken nuggets, okay? And now you're asking me to somehow change the entire family's diet so that I can't give him mac and cheese and chicken nuggets when that's barely all he's going to eat? Yeah, no. No. And, and that's, that's, that's sort of the struggle that I see. So it can be as urgent and exigent as literally people can't make their ends meet. And, you know, as very mundane as I got better things to do right now, I have more important things to worry about, like my kid, is he going to eat enough, let alone, let alone what he's going to eat. And I feel like those are sort of the barriers, they're real barriers. Whether you think they're legitimate or not, that's what we're up against. And we need to find creative solutions for those kinds of barriers instead of simply saying that they're wrong. I mean, you can tell, tell a person that they're stupid or they're illegitimate or, wow, you're being so, like, first world, whatever. You can say all of those things, but that doesn't actually change anyone's behavior.
1: Absolutely. Very well said. And I think there is particularly amongst uh, and what we often talk about amongst my friends is white veganism, which is this sort of blancmange or favorite word of mine, blancmange, mediocre view of veganism that everyone can afford to trundle along down to whole foods and pick up their, you know, cinnamon turmeric reishi mushroom latte you know not everyone can live like that you know a lot of people are struggling to as you said to just to make ends meet they don't have the emotional and mental capacity because they're so overstretched financially or physically working a few jobs and you know for the vast portion of the world many many people are just battling to get by and so the idea that we should stop and consider animals is almost an affront you know, people are horrified by that. They, they think, how dare you kind of tell me how I should live and should eat. But I think, you know, this is the monster that is ahead of us, is this factory farming monster that is so prevalent within our lives, which has made food in, you know, it's obviously subs- heavily subsidized by governments across the planet, but it is so cheap and so affordable, but it is causing so much damage, not only just to people's health, but obviously a, a planetary health, as we said. You know, there are times where it can feel hopeless. I mean, when you look out at the world as, a, as someone who, you know, is clearly very, very well read and and very well educated, do you ever feel overwhelmed by the enormity of what what, what is ahead of us and 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 the sort of the the need really to try to unravel or dismantle this because it is it does seem gargantuan at times.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, um, and especially in the last few years. I think that, you know, the, the movie that really changed my thinking and made me very open to potentially adopting a vegan diet. I mean, my husband peddled all the movies <laughs> I, was, I watched them all. Um, and I was like, okay, okay. And, you know, this is the way that I kind of went through it. Number one mm. was, you know, Finding Ultra, wonderful book. Rich Roll is an amazing man. But I was like, but that's my health. You know, I'm, it's, it's my personal individual decision. That's my body. And then you go move on to the animals and it's like, okay, well, you know what? I've been eating animals my whole life. Why would I change that now? And then finally I watched Cowspiracy and I was like, okay, so now you're telling me my decision, what I eat in my house uh, for dinner is going to impact the rest of the world, not just me, not just the animals, every living being on this planet. And at that point, I could not ignore it. I could not ignore the ethical and moral implications of everything that I was eating on a daily basis. And when that sort of slid into place, then everything Every bad thing that happens in this world, and I'm not just talking from a climate change perspective, everything takes on this like high level of red alert urgency. So in the past year, you know, we saw the death of Ahmaud Arbery, which really like that catapulted me into a very dark place. And then we saw the death of George Floyd. And since then we have, you know, Breonna Taylor. I mean, every single bad thing that has happened in our society, especially in the United States, and now heightened by this, these attacks against the Asian American community, I feel like, okay, not only do we need to fix these problems, we need to fix them now. Because we do not have time. People think that this world is going to be around forever, forever, and ever, and ever. And that's the fallacy that we are living under. If we continue to treat our planet the way we have been, not just from a climate change perspective, but from a human perspective, we are running out of time to address these really fundamental problems of what it means to be a human being. And that has really anchored itself in my brain. And it makes me cry like a lot when I see these things happening because I feel like, oh my gosh, we need to fix these problems. And every day that we wait to address these sins against the planet and against ourselves, we are making it 10 times worse.
1: Very well said, very well said. And one of the ways in which you are doing this is with your art, which leads us very nicely onto The Korean Vegan, which is obviously your gift to the world your artistry which is your voice um obviously your food as well which is a big part of it <laughs> but it's your voice that's what I first noticed about you I saw a video on Instagram and you know there was this beautiful lady in a in a video cooking up some food and I thought wow that looks interesting and I stopped and usually usually on Instagram the audio is off you don't really you don't really a lot of the time modern people don't w- watch videos with audio but I turned it on that time and I lit and I listened to you speak and it wasn't you know it wasn't so much about what you were cooking it was what you were saying and that com- completely and i have been dying to tell you it completely captivated me i was i was instantly in love with your <laughs> with your voice and your words because you have such a beautiful way of expressing the problem and then also addressing the solutions but also just sharing your view with the world and i think for me these are one of the solutions to our many, um, many of our problems is dialogue, is communication, is artistry, and is, is, is art and poetry and the spoken word. Because it, as I said earlier, it can unlock realization within others. And that is what unlocked the realization within me watching Earthlings. It wasn't so much what I was seeing, it was more what I was hearing, the words and the script and the way that the, the person it was Joaquin Phoenix spoke about animals and our relationship and the interconnectedness of our world. each of us holds the power within us to be able to bring change. but a lot of us that grow up in this world we're completely unaware of that power, and the voice is where we hold that power, whether it's spoken voice or whether we write they're very similar in many ways that that execution is 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 so powerful and obviously. Let's, you know, talk about the Korean vegan. Tell us about where it came from and 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 share share with us about your kind of vision for it because it is it's very special in my opinion.
0: Well, Robbie, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words and also thank you for that very um stirring sort of motivation because it's so true. I think that so many times, and and I'm the same, we think that as one person, as one voice, we don't have any power, that we don't have any ability to effectuate any meaningful or long-lasting change. And I didn't think that I had any ability to do that either. I started the Korean Vegan mostly as a tool for myself. I needed Korean food. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was very afraid that if I went vegan, I wouldn't be able to eat it anymore because there really weren't... Any Korean vegan blogs at the time, and I was like, "Okay, well, I need to figure out how to make all the food that I grew up eating vegan because I refuse to eat you know what other people eat, which was my stereotypical view of the vegan diet, which was quinoa and kale. I'm like, I can't, I can't subsist on that. That's not going to work for me. So I really started it as a tool for myself and also as a way to explore my own creativity. I'm a lawyer full time. I don't really get to do lots of creative things. So I'm like, okay, let me just try this, see what happens. I didn't think it would. Do anything literally. I had no thought in my mind that I would be sharing recipes that people would actually try. It was really for me. Then in 2016, we had a major shift in our country in terms of ideology and politics, and uh, you know, with the onset of the new administration in our White House, I felt very strongly that I wanted to participate in a way to change people's hearts about race, and their views on immigrants. And I didn't know how to do that. I, I knew how other people were doing it. They were going out in the streets and they were yelling and, or they were becoming politically active or ranting on Facebook and things like that. And I just didn't think that that was the most effective way that I could contribute to the discussion. At the time, I think I had like 4,000 followers on Instagram. And I was like, hmm, well, I've got a quote platform why don't I start sharing some stories about my family and making them relatable and making them human so that no matter what color you are and no matter what political ideology you adopt, you can say, hey, I kind of understand, I relate, that resonates with me. And so that's what I started doing in 2017. I started posting very short vignettes about my parents and what it was like growing up as an immigrant family here in the United States. That's really the beginning of what you see now in the Korean vegan, which is a now video platform more than it is a photographic one. Anytime I go for a walk or a run, I look for the white line down the middle of the path because my mom once told me that she stayed up all night long drawing that line to make sure that no matter where I ended up, I would always find my way back home to her. When the full moon is out, I like to smile at it because Amma told me once that the reason the moon follows me everywhere I go is because he likes me. I never wear sandals while riding my bicycle because I once fell and skinned my knee and instead of soothing me, Umma told me it was because only idiots wear sandals while riding their bikes. It sometimes looks like I'm swishing my butt back and forth when I walk. Not because I'm trying to be provocative but because Umma was always embarrassed that our calves wouldn't touch no matter how hard we pressed our knees together and so I walk as if I'm on a balance beam to hide the gap between my legs. I like to check the closets of the people I love because once, Alma packed all her things and walked out the door and I thought she would never come back. She did. But I couldn't stop checking her closets after that. And now, sometimes I check Anthony's too.
1: I'd love to understand your method a bit. So obviously, there's one aspect which I love is that you're very sharp and very witty. Have you always been like that? Or is that something that you've developed? I
0: do not consider myself sharp or witty whatsoever. I'm mostly (laughs) self-deprecating, which sometimes it it, it may resemble wit, but it really
1: isn't. (laughs) It's amazing. And also, you have this sort of no... BS, no bullshit approach to talking about things like love and death and pain. Do you think that's why people love you? There's no filter there. You just say, you speak your mind. And if people like it, amazing. If they don't, they can <laughs> take a
0: hike. Yes, take a hike. I think, I think that that does resonate with people because I think we have gotten to a point in social media culture where people are starting to get pretty sick of the sort of facade, the fake, I live a perfect life we don't live perfect lives. And sure, it may be fun to fantasize about that life, but right now, particularly with everything that's been happening, a freaking global pandemic, we're hungry for solutions. We're not hungry for fantasy anymore. And I think that was what I was trying to provide you know, in addition to the storytelling component is a little bit of tough love. And that's the kind of advice that I want. I don't want advice that's frilly and, you know, based on fantasy. I want advice that's practical, that I could literally implement the moment I walk out of that room. And that was what I was trying to impart as
1: well. The the process, you obviously mix, for anyone who hasn't watched it, please do go check out The Korean Vegan on Instagram. The process is you're cooking and you're speaking and they're very well edited and put together. How do you plan that? Do you write a script before? Do you wing it? Like, how do you put them together?
0: I do not wing it. (laughs) I am not a winger. (laughs) Um, I definitely write out everything that you see in these videos, literally word for word. I don't always say them word for word, but I like to have everything written out. So at least my brain knows ahead of time exactly where it's headed what the beginning middle and end of each 60 second video is going to be so i definitely write it out i shoot everything if it's a cooking video i shoot everything in advance I don't have a story in mind when I'm picking a recipe or shooting a video. I just kind of shoot the video for what it is. And then afterwards, I'll sort of think about things uh, and write down a short little vignette that attaches to that cooking video. For the advice videos or the anti or como videos, I won't make one unless I feel like there's something that I want to share. So I'll already have an idea in my head and then I'll write it down the entire script and then I'll shoot it and then edit it and post it.
1: Amazing. And and what? Are, obviously there are many different monologues. What are one of your most popular and what, uh, what was it about?
0: I think probably there are are a couple of stories that are really popular. The one about my father and me getting a divorce, that is hands down my most viral cooking video. And it's with my spicy, crunchy garlic tofu, which is also my most popular recipe. Definitely. That answers the next
1: question, which was what was your most popular recipe? That is, there you go. They go
0: hand in hand. That's not a coincidence, right? Um, so that's my most popular recipe and my most popular story time video. For my advice video, probably my series on heartbreak. And, you know, getting hurt or getting dumped, all of those are very popular. And I think they were different. They were kind of new in that, you know, there aren't a lot of advice videos like that where you see an auntie like making food and then forcing you to eat it at the end while, you know, telling you, you know, yeah, love is shit or, you know, something like that. (laughs) Um, So it was a little bit different. Um, Mm. But again, they're all designed to empower people. I want people to feel like they can do something at the end of it.
1: But that's what uh, an auntie figure take, takes on. That's the auntie archetype, right? I grew up in uh, African culture where you went to other people's homes and everybody who was female was older than you, was auntie. And and the aunties were always, you know, uh, old, older women in your culture who would be there caring for you, looking after you. The extended family in, in African cultures is very uh, common and, and very prominent. And it's, it's you know, they, there's that old cliche that it takes a village to raise a child. In my opinion, and that really is how things should be, where people have those role models, those people who are supportive of them uh, to be around them and give them that guidance they need. Because many people do feel very isolated and very alone. So you you definitely embody that, you know, that auntie who you go to for absolutely anything, which I absolutely love.
0: <laughs> well, that's so good. I, it, people ask me all the time, like, why do you call yourself komo, which is a, a Korean word for a specific aunt it's your it's your father's sister and I tell them because I actually have a nephew I started this series with my nephew in mind I was like oh my god I can't wait until he's old enough and he's coming to me and he's like oh you know como my the girlfriend that I had dumped me or I like this girl and she doesn't like me back what do I do or I'm heartbroken or I didn't get the job I wanted and I'm like these are the conversations that I can't wait to have with him so that's really what inspired them Then we're gonna... Dump this all into our big bowl of veggies, and you can already see how gorgeous it looks. We're gonna add about one half of a cup of liquid egg replacer. I'm using Just Egg. We're gonna use one teaspoon of garlic powder, one teaspoon of onion powder, and folks, these seasonings make a huge difference. I'm using two tablespoons of potato starch. If you don't have to, potato starch, you can use corn starch. I'm also adding a fourth of a cup of regular flour. You can also use gluten-free flour. And then, to give it that extra umami oomph, I'm going to add two tablespoons of soy sauce as well. And then we're just going to stir this all up together. You can use a fork, you can use a spoon. I'm using my chopsticks because that's what I always use to cook these days.
1: So I hear you get asked this question a lot is how can you be vegan and be Korean? As many (laughs) of my dear listeners will know, Korean cooking is synonymous with fish sauce and and barbecues. Tell us about your exciting new book, The Korean Vegan Cookbook, out October 12th, 2021, if I'm correct. Yes. And how you managed to distill all this knowledge into 336 pages of Korean (laughs) vegan foodie magic.
0: You know, a lot of it was just... Research. I mean, when you've been vegan for five years, you do learn a thing or two about flavor and, you know, flavor profiles and really maximizing the flavors, I guess, Um, you know, whether it's through spices or other, you know, long cooking times or things like that. And I think it just all sort of culminated in, in a bunch of these recipes that I really enjoy and that I love to eat. I also, you know, bothered my mom a lot <laughs> about, oh, how do you yeah, how do you make this? Or what do you do to the milk to make it so soft? Or, you know, how come your vegetable broth always tastes so much better than mine, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of that. And it was just a real joy to put together. And it was, again, designed to show people what I set out to prove to myself when I started the Korean vegan, which is I can be every bit as Korean as I was before I went vegan. And so that is really what this is intended to prove to people is whether you're Korean or you're Chinese or Indian or whatever ethnic cuisine you grew up eating, that doesn't need to be eliminated once you go vegan. Mm.
1: Amazing. The book's titled The Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma, Oma's Kitchen. Oma. Mm-hmm. Oma, Oma's Kitchen. Oma, is that? Mother. Oma? Mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Reflections, I assume, alludes to the idea that it isn't just cooking, but it also thoughts and ideas as well.
0: Yeah. So I had to fight for this because originally I think they were a little bit nervous about including too much of my writing in the cookbook. They wanted it to be just a you know, cookbook. And I was like, yeah, no, but I want to share these stories. This is what I do on Instagram. And, and they were very open to the idea at first. And then they were like, yeah, no, I think we just want the recipes. And I was like, okay, fine. And then my TikTok blew up. And all of a sudden, they're like, "Okay, maybe we should start incorporating some of these stories." And I was very excited about that. So, um, you know, each chapter of the book comes with it a pretty substantial piece of writing, which is uh, the writing side of the Korean vegan, sharing the stories from my family, some of which you will have already heard through my TikTok videos and my Insta- Instagram videos, but others of which are brand new um, and that really highlight my parents.
1: Amazing. And that leads us nicely on to the the area of politics. And that's one of the things I love about you It's very bold and outspoken when it comes to many, many important issues. The lives of people of color in the USA, the abuse and violence towards people of, um, Asia, of Asian descent, as you've mentioned, and of course, also LGBTQ plus rights as well. How does um, being vegan uh, intersect or interconnect with your kind of passion for speaking out against, you know, the systems of oppression across our planet?
0: You know, I think to answer that question, I'll go back to a discussion that I had with Chungguan Guan She's that Buddhist monk in Korea. And I was so excited to talk to her. I was like, oh, look at my Instagram. I go by the Korean vegan. But, you know, I said to her, but you're the OG Korean vegan, right? <laughs> and, you know, she just kind of looked at me and was like, ha And she very nicely explained I don't use the word vegan or not vegan. It doesn't mean anything really to me. It's just a word. She's like, I live by my philosophy, which is to cause the least amount of harm to all living beings on the planet. And that includes myself. And she's like, anytime you hurt somebody, you also hurt yourself. Anytime you hurt an animal, you're hurting yourself. When you pull plants out of the earth, you are causing a little harm to yourself. Every action that you do can cause harm. And the idea is to live a life that causes the least amount of harm that you possibly can. So when you think of it that way, you know, veganism is a very convenient way to describe the way that I eat and in some ways, the way that I live my life. But it's very easy to fall into this trap of saying, I'm vegan and that's it. I I don't eat animal products or I advocate on behalf of animal rights. And that's all I do. And that's wonderful, that's fine. But for me, it's more like I am who I am. And part of who I am is that I love animals and therefore I try to live a life that causes them the least amount of harm as possible. Part of who I am is that I care about this planet and I care about the existential threat imposed by animal agriculture and the way that we eat. And therefore, I'm trying to do the things necessary to mitigate against that danger. Part of who I am is that I care about racism and the evil impact that it has had on humanity and this planet. And therefore, I try to do things that fight against racism or any kind of discrimination to any disenfranchised group. So these are the things that are just who I am. And everything that I do is an extrapolation of who I am, veganism included. And so for me, I can't view it as buckets, you know, like categories of activism. It's just, This is who I am and I communicate how I feel. And these are the things that have always been important to me. The elderly, children, animals, and race. Those are the things that I grew up feeling very strongly about.
1: At what point did you find the courage, or was it a process for you to be able to speak about these things uh, that you care about so publicly? When there are so many people out there who have public platforms or who have, who find fame through whatever they do, who who don't speak about these things for fear of you know not selling enough books or not selling enough movies, or was this a, what kind of process did you go through as a person to be able to say, do you know what this is stuff I care about? I'm going to speak about it, and if you don't like it. Take a hike.
0: (laughs) That's you know you're so right, Robbie. Because I don't I don't want to lie and suggest that I've always been this way. I fell into that trap for a long time as a food blogger. I was like, oh, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know, I need followers. I don't want them to you know not like me or be mad at me or you know I got a lot of that uh, when I first started talking about these issues. But I would say. In 2017 was when I started sharing stories about my family. And that was a very gentle way of opening the hearts of my followers. I never talked directly about politics, never mentioned any of that stuff. It was just, hey, listen to this story about what it was like bringing kimchi to kindergarten instead of lunchables." It wasn't great. <laughs> you know? So that was the way it started. In 2000, I would say last year. With the death of Ahmad Arbery, that's when I was like, okay, this isn't enough. I need to be far more direct about my communication on these issues. And I really started to do a lot more reading and more introspection because I wanted to be an effective communicator. I didn't want to just like blah, you know, like just put it out there and just like, this is how I feel. You know, I really wanted to do it effectively and strategically. But then things sort of kind of raced ahead of me, right? Because right after that, then we had the death of George Floyd. And then we had this kind of groundswell of support for the BLM movement here in the United States. I got caught up in that wave as well. And at that point, I just kind of like seeded to my feelings and my emotions and was just like, I'm just going to put what I feel out there. I got a lot of pushback, a lot of people were unhappy with the direction that the Korean vegan was moving in, but probably not as much as other food bloggers because they knew that my, my cuisine is cultural and ethnic and that my culture is a central aspect of the Korean vegan. So I didn't get nearly as much as I'm sure some of my peers did, but I made it very clear that this is who I am. And like you said, if you don't like it, you can take a hike. And I think at some point I even changed my bio to make it explicit. Like it's very clear, like, Hey, I support BLM LGBTQ rights, you know, women's rights. If this is not for you, you self-select and remove yourself from me because I don't want an audience that's going to, be up in my face when I start screaming that I'm very happy that Donald Trump is not president anymore. I okay?
1: meant to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the power of politics, right? It is. It is a force of nature. It really is, um, and it can do and can do a lot of good, um, and it can do a lot of damage. And it is and has already done a lot of damage to our world over, over the last several centuries uh, that it has been active. How do you feel about the state of politics today? I know that's a big question. You probably Need an hour to answer it, but just give us a sound bite about how you feel about this the change in the administration in the US and how do you feel? Do you feel hopeful that things are changing and shifting in the right direction, or is it kind of business as usual? Do you think?
0: I think two things. Number one, I had dinner with my parents. A couple days ago, it was my birthday, so I went over to my parents' house and we had dinner. And my parents have been lamenting the status of politics in South Korea for the past several months. And to me, I didn't really pay attention because I was like, we got our own problems here in the United States. And particularly in the early days of the pandemic, I very seriously considered Like requiring my parents to move back to Korea because, you know, here things were literally falling off the rails and everybody was getting sick and people were dying and there was really no light at the end of our tunnel, given what the administration was doing or not doing in support of of the community. But then, you know, things finally got on track, and my parents were very adamant about staying here in the United States. I finally asked them a couple days ago, I said, Daddy, if you had to choose between going back to Korea and staying here in the United States, which one would you choose? And he said, Here absolutely. I said, really? Even after everything that's been happening, especially with these attacks on Asian Americans and all the things that we had to live through, you know, with the global pandemic and what happened with the prior administration? And he said, yes. And I said, why? He's like, because here democracy works. And that sent chills down my spine because my father has lived through so many political regimes, where he has seen the hope of democracy spread and then completely betrayed over and over and over again. And he has lost hope for democracy in his home country, but he still maintains that hope here in the United States.
1: Considering we can't trust our politicians and considering that the situation is as bad as it is and has been, do you feel like democracy is dead or do you think that we are going to see a real shift in the right direction because i think obviously of four years with four years of donald trump it it felt like a a complete and utter circus i mean we were sitting over here in the uk shaking our heads almost on a daily basis about what was going to happen next now that we have biden in in the white house in the us it doesn't protect us from another person of that sort getting into power and having that level of control again how you know that's a, that is one of the dangers of democracy. It really allows anyone to take that level of control and potentially undo all the good that others have done. So, you know, how do we how do we maintain a sense of kind of hope when when democracy can be quite agnostic in that way?
0: I think that you you go back to that wonderful quote by Martin Luther King, which is you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, the moral arc is long, but it bends towards justice. And it's very easy for us, particularly when we're in the middle of a global pandemic, for us to think that you know, these last four years are so pivotal to human history and where we're headed. But if we look at it from a total top-down view, I do think that we're headed in the right direction. And I think that there are a couple things specific to the Biden administration. And my number one reason why I you know, voted for Joe Biden, uh, which is his take on climate change. I I don't think that he views it nearly enough as much as an existential threat as it actually is, but certainly it's an improvement from the prior administration. And his commitments to um, addressing the harms of climate change are at least in the right direction. And that is very important. Like I said, it literally is the foundation of everything that I think about these days because there's no problem as important and critical to fix than climate change. There literally is nothing because everything else happens on this planet, right? Without it, nothing else exists. And so to me, that was a really big and important win for the world, not just for the United States. But I think the other thing to sort of think about is democracy's big asset Is freedom of speech. Speech is so important. Why? A, because it unearths the ills of the world, right? We did not know for a long time that there was this really burgeoning anger and rage that was simmering. That's what put Donald Trump into office. There was an illness in our country that I think was just either being ignored or we just didn't know of it, right? The other important aspect of freedom of speech is normalization. We now have someone who's got the megaphone who believes that climate change is a problem, and hopefully he will use that megaphone to Build that into people's hearts, no matter who they voted for, make them understand how critical this problem is. And therefore, in four years, maybe more people will understand the urgency underlying climate change and be willing to do something about it, whether it's as simple as replacing their meatloaf with, you know, beyond meat once a week, or as voting the right person into office who will do something about
1: it. Very well said. Very well said. One of the um, other aspects of your life is that you are a lawyer, very busy and demanding job, that is. Um, How is it that you're able to juggle a job like that plus run what could be a very busy uh, content platform creator page? Do you ever wish you had more time, or would and would you ever consider stepping away from law and doing the vegan, uh, the Korean vegan full time?
0: I think that you know part of the secret to my ability to juggle is um, very kind, patient, and generous people like yourself who are willing to be flexible with my schedule and accommodate last minute. Uh, I have to go to court, so I can't do the podcast today. Um, so that you know has been really great working with people who sort of understand that my schedule is a little bit unpredictable. For example, my publisher. I mean, it typically doesn't take three years from book deal to, <laughs> to publication date, but it did for me because they realized I can't be in the kitchen you know, every day testing recipes and writing things down and taking photographs. I have a full-time job. And the other thing is that Yes, I do have a full-time job, but I'm lucky in that it's not one of those jobs where I literally have to punch in, you know, at 9 a.m. and leave at 5 p.m., Sometimes that is really sucky because sometimes that means I'm at the office from 6 a.m. till midnight, you know, that's my job. But sometimes that also means that I'm at the office from, you know, 7.30 to 12.30 because I've got a slow day. So I have a very flexible schedule in that I get to control when I work as long as my clients are getting what they need. They don't really care what hour it's at, but, you know, that affords me some level of control. But I also have to be very, honest, which is sometimes the Korean vegan is going to be neglected. And I've said this on every podcast interview I've given my clients, get 100% of Joanne. They don't get 80% or 70%. They get me when they need me, even if the Korean vegan is like, hey, but there's an interview or wait, you need to do a YouTube video. Nope. Nope. That just means I'm not going to do a YouTube video that week, or I'm not going to post on Instagram for a few days. And that's just the way that it, it kind of works. And so far it's been okay. And, you know, ask your final question, you know whether I could give my legal career up for the Korean vegan full time. You know that's not something that I'm thinking about. I'm mostly I'm just trying to get from day one to day two, <laughs> and and keep it all like you know alive.
1: You you didn't actually say uh, we didn't. Uh, I didn't ask you what kind of law uh, you practice. So what what is what what is the law? Uh, what is the area of law that you're in?
0: So I'm a commercial litigator, uh, which means I'm basically a trial lawyer. I litigate all sorts of commercial issues with a primary focus on bankruptcy litigation and antitrust litigation.
1: Sounds thrilling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's very exciting.
1: (laughs) So, So when it comes to sort of what you do, obviously... The social world is a, uh, a very competitive space. Everyone wants a slice of that coveted Instagram blue tick, right? As there are many people out there who, who want to do what you do for good reasons, for monetary reasons, whatever those reasons are. What's some of your advice for people who, who have, want to take their voice with their skill, their creativity, and, and kind of do what you do and, and make a difference, um, but have that burning desire within them, but don't really know where to begin? What, what would you say to them?
0: So I I will give you a little bit of an anecdote that will hopefully answer that question in a practical way. So when I started my Instagram, I worked on it for about four and a half years. And I did largely what other people did, which is take photographs. I tried to make them as beautiful and appealing as possible. And I posted little recipes at the very bottom in the captions or sometimes on my blog every once in a while, probably about once or twice a week, I would also incorporate a short little vignette from my family as we discussed. But in other respects, it was largely like a lot of other Instagram accounts. It was when I started posting videos and uh, that I started sharing almost exclusively stories about my family. And I pretty much stopped posting recipes in my captions or, you know, kind of doing the more conventional Instagram approach that I went from having 70,000 followers to 400,000 followers. So it took me four and a half years to go from zero to 70,000, which was very, I was very proud of that because I worked really, really hard. And then it took me seven months to go from 70,000 to 400,000. So, I mean, the answer is that Number one, video, okay? That's a very practical answer. All of the social media platforms right now, including YouTube, obviously TikTok, and uh, you know, Instagram, including Facebook, are really pushing video content, particularly short-form video content. So that's just a practical piece of advice there. But more globally, what I'm trying to say is do something different you know what's out there already. If you're smart and you've done your research, you know what's out there. Now add value because it's it's simple supply and demand. There's only so much demand for what it is that you want to give. You want to reach a demand that isn't being satisfied yet. And the best way to do that is to look into yourself and say, what can I bring to this that nobody else is? The answer is inside of you. It absolutely is. You just need to tap into it.
1: Mm, Very, very good advice. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stranded on a desert island and it was just you and a pig... (laughs) Obviously, you don't need to pay because you're vegan. Um, (laughs) And I gave you one vegan dish, one music album, and uh, one book. What would you take with you?
0: Okay, vegan dish, it would have to be... Oh, geez. Okay, vegan dish would probably be kimchi. Kimchi. (laughs) <laughs> and Okay. So, it, so vegan dish would be kimchi, but I'm assuming that I'll have rice there. So if I can, can make yeah. rice, then yeah. it would be kimchi. <laughs> and then music would probably be Bach, uh, Bach-Goldberg variations. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sorry, what was the third thing?
1: And what book would you take with you to read on your island?
0: Uh, the book that I would take would be jane austen's pride and prejudice this is my favorite book of all time so those Amazing. are the three things <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much joanne molaro thank you so much for joining us on thank the PBN you, podcast robbie. what a pleasure that hour has flown by i really hope we can do a part two at some point
0: absolutely would love it
1: thanks so much for joining us everyone i've been your host robbie lucky and this is the pbn podcast we'll be back next time with more food fashion technology veganism animals and everything in between